Well, first of all, I feel very lucky and honored to be born when I was born, where I was born, and to do all of these things at a really special, magical time, not only in the history of our city, in the history of our country, but, you know, in the history of the planet. I started doing this at a time when it was actually possible to get close to the people that were making history. You can't do this anymore in what has become a very corporatized country and planet. But, you know, I could do two hours on that. We'll just do a little rock and roll today. <laughs> this first picture, this was actually taken at Kizar Stadium in March of 1975, and the San Francisco schools had run out of money, so Bill decided to have a concert, and they called it Snack, and it was basically to raise money for music, sports, all the things in the public high schools that kids needed and didn't have. And he put it together in about a week's time, and it turned out to be pretty much a who's who. At the end of the show, Bob Dylan showed up on stage with a few members of the band, Neil Young. Bill pulled us up on stage. Francis Coppola, this is all, this, is all, this picture was taken behind the amps as Dylan... Neil Young, everybody was jamming. You see Marlon Brando in the middle, that he had just come from Apocalypse Now. Members of the Starship were there, the airplane. I remember seeing John Brody and his wife at the time. Brody was the quarterback for the 49ers, Cedric Hardman. It was literally a who's who. Eric Clapton, Bill, when he first started putting the shows on, Eric Clapton was with Cream. They were arguably one of the best two or three bands in the world at the time. And Bill forged a great relationship with Eric. Eric is actually the person that got me started in photography. Because I'd, I'd been writing a book, you know, trying to find my way in the world. What was I going to do? And I was marking proof sheets in his hotel room. And he was going through the transcripts of our interview. And he said, he says, oh, what are you doing there? And I said, I'm just proofs I'm marking. He says, so can I see these? And I gave him the proof sheets. I had a little loop. So he's holding the loop out. Oh, these are great. And I said, you know, if you put the loop on the, on the proof sheets, you can actually see them. And at that point, Eric started looking. He said, look, man, these are fucking great. Can we use these? And I said, for what? He says, look, songbooks, albums. He says, look, man, we'll pay you. And I said, yeah, that'd be great. And that... That actually is how I started out, because I did not have a background in photography. And up until that moment, never thought about being a photographer. Sex Pistols. This was a show I really didn't even want to shoot when I was originally assigned by Rolling Stone. I had heard their album once, and I thought, these guys suck. <laughs> and they said, no, you know, this, this could be their last tour. Go to Soundcheck, get some shots. So. I saw about a 10-second feed, I think, off CBS News, and they were in either Atlanta or Texas, and it confirmed what I already thought. I thought, these guys are the worst. So I went to the sound check. It was raining. I'm waiting outside of Winterland. Their bus pulled up. They got off the bus. I could tell as they got off the bus this was going to be special. And I remember the last person off was Sid Vicious, and he was stumbling. He was fucked up. He had a Nazi armband on his knee. And I thought, wow, Bill Graham is waiting inside. This is... And just as he got through the door, his manager was right behind him, and Bill grabbed 
Malcolm McLaren and goes, that, that's not a fashion statement. He's going to take that off. And, and I was surprised he didn't jump him and, and choke him. Came home and I told Chris and I said, you've got to come tonight. I have a feeling this is going to be a special show. And we went early. The lobby was jammed and it was the whole punk scene from Los Angeles had come up and basically met the punk scene from San Francisco. And it was electric inside. There are a number of people in the audience tonight, Brixton Key being one of them, that were at that show. You know, if you, if you now see the video, you'll go, I don't get it. It was, it was like a full-blown riot. The energy was unbelievable. I mean, from the time they hit the stage, there were bottles, people hacking up lungers, throwing things, and it was just nonstop. Sweat was dripping off the wall. I took this maybe 10 seconds before they were done. As they walked off, Johnny grabbed the microphone and he said, don't you all feel cheated? Threw it down and that was it. They were done. But it was one, if you were there, it was one of the great nights ever. I mean, it was like seeing James Brown at the Howard Theater in 1965. It was one of those things where if you were there, you were just like, oh my God. This is uh, The Who at Winterland in March of 1976. You know, arguably, at this point in time, this was probably the nadir of who the who were, both musically and just as a band. This was the second night of their tour, and I'd been shooting. Before they went on stage, I'm backstage, I'm rolling film up, and their drummer, Keith Moon, who was a great guy, but he was a madman, he walked in and he goes, whoa, I've got a surprise for you. I said, for me? I said, what? And he held up this little plastic bag. And I said, jerky? He goes, jerky. He pulls out this black thing, tears it in half. He goes, well, it's magic mushroom, isn't it? And I, he immediately ate half and threw it down with the beer. And he goes, you fancy some? I said, Mooney, I, I've got to shoot. He goes, and I've got to play me fucking drums. <laughs> so, so I thought, I ate it, what the hell. And so now, like five minutes later, I think it's Clayton or Jerry Pompili, somebody's leading us up onto the stage and Moon's in front of me and I sort of grabbed the back of his shirt and I said, hey, what kind of trip's this gonna be? He goes, don't know. So, so the show went along and we shot the first three quarters of it. There, you can't see it here, but there's like little standards to the left and right of the stage about 15 feet off the stage from video standards. We're shooting, Kristen's handing me cameras and at one point, as she hands me a camera, there's kind of like trails. And now I'm starting to feel like kind of anxious and I'm starting to sweat. And I'm thinking, I said, oh, you know, I think we better go up on the stage. So we end up on the stage and now things are really starting to like close off around me and, and I'm, I'm starting to pour sweat. I said, you know, oh, let, let's, go, let's go into the balcony because they had closed the balcony off. So we find ourselves in the balcony and now I'm really tripping. I'm just like, oh, what, a, what an incredible show. And this is the climax. And he was getting ready to throw his guitar up, and Kristen goes, are, are you shooting this? And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and so that's how I happened to get that shot. And it's arguably one of the more iconic shots I got from that period. <laughs> this is my partner in crime, that's Keith Moon, and you can sort of get the sense that Moon, above and beyond being a great drummer, it's a very different person.
Sadly, he left us 1978. He was, and, and true Keith Moon, he was on Anabuse, so he wouldn't drink. But he was at Ronnie Wood's wedding and throwing down champagne. And people were saying, you're not supposed to be drinking. He says, right, but you're, you're drinking champagne. He says, no, man, it's just champagne. It's a wedding. I'm not really drinking. So he went home, had breakfast at like 8 in the morning, went to bed, and basically regurgitated and choked on his own vomit, kind of like Jimi Hendrix. Robert Plant. This was from one of the most infamous two days that any show that Bill Graham produced ever experienced. Led Zeppelin was, at the time, you know, they were at the top. They were managed by Peter Grant, who was imposing and dictatorial. And as their stage manager, Binden, had told me, I said, hey, I, I heard Peter had run-ins with the law. He was busted. He goes, right, he was busted. He said he did stint in Brixton. I said, for what? He said, manslaughter. And I said, manslaughter? He says, right, mate, manslaughter. It's what happens when you like murder some bloke, but you've got bread, and you get out of it. That was Peter Grant. The, the day I took this, one of Bill Graham's uh, stage men took a basketball away from Peter's son, who was 12. And he was very polite about it, very innocent, but Peter's son went to Peter. They lured the kid, who was Jim Mitzorkas, into a trailer and beat him almost to death. Bill was going to cancel the show, but they, you know, they had 60,000 tickets sold. And so he went to his lawyer, who at the time was Bill Koblenz, who was the head of the Board of Regents at the University of California. Peter Grant made Bill sign paper basically saying he wouldn't sue Led Zeppelin or they wouldn't form. And Bill told, Bill Koblenz told Bill Graham, he said, look, sign it. It'll have no validity because you're having to sign it under duress. So... Bill signed it. The next day, I was shooting for Led Zeppelin. I show up, and Peter Barsotti, who was Bill's stage manager, said, uh, Z, you can't shoot today with that pass. I said, what are you talking about? It's, I'm with the band, Led Zeppelin. He said, yeah, you have to ask Peter Grant to request one of our passes. I said, hey, man, I know what's going on. I said, I've got a family. Don't involve me in this. I'm just, you know, I'm no, I have nothing to do with this. He goes, yeah, so if you want to shoot, you've got to have Peter Grant request the pass. So I go to Peter Grant, I'm three quarters of the way through telling him, he goes, he says, look, man, he says, you've got the only fucking pass you need. He says, you're with Led Zeppelin. And you tell them, if they lay a hand on you, we've got two blokes here packing, and we'll blow them away. I said, Peter, I can't. He says, no, he says, you tell them that word for word, straight away. And, now I'm th and we actually did have two LAPD SWAT cops that were our tour security people. And these guys were right out of a Costa Gravis move. Short hair, they had magnums, they had windbreakers that had a big thing on the back and the front that said LAPD SWAT with a magnum. And they looked like guys that would take you out. I, you know, I told somebody later, they would have busted all of us if they would have been on duty and we were in LA because there, was, there were a lot of drugs on that tour, <laughs> to, to put it mildly. So we ended up playing the show. First of all, I went back and told, told Barsotti, I said, hey, he told me that this is the only pass I need, and if anybody lays a hand on me, they've got two guys packing, they'll blow you away. But, and he goes, wait, they'll blow us away? I said, Peter, it's, you know, he's just talking, I'm sure. So he went and got Bill, and now Bill comes back. He goes, Michael, what did he say to you, word for word? I'm 
done. I, so I, I tell him. He says, wait, they'll blow us away? They'll blow us away? I said, Bill, he says, come with me. And so now I know I'm, I'm not shooting today. I'm not getting paid. He took me down in front of the stage, and there were about 10 or 12 guys that looked kind of like Samoan thugs. They had their feet and their hands taped up like they were boxers going into the ring. And Bill goes, see this man, meaning me, he pulls up my Led Zeppelin laminate. He goes, he's working for Led Zeppelin, but remember his face. He's a friend of ours. No one lay a hand on him. He says, you can go now. <laughs> we ended up playing the show. There was no trouble. After the show, the band got in its limos, had an escort of Highway Patrol, Alameda County Sheriffs, and Oakland PD, right to the plane on the runway, surrounded the plane, Everybody gets out of the limos. They grabbed Peter Grant, John Bonham, the drummer, and Binden, arrested them, took them to Alameda County, you know, fingerprint. They weren't able to get on the flight. The band flew on to New Orleans, where they were supposed to play the Superdome two, day, two days later. Robert got a call the next morning that his son Carrick, who was four years old, had contracted peritonitis and died. Led Zeppelin flew back to England, never to perform in the United States again as Led Zeppelin. Now, the irony of this is three great bands, Led Zeppelin, The Beatles, The Sex Pistols. Well, I wouldn't call The Sex Pistols a great band, but they were a phenomenon. They all played the last show they ever played in San Francisco. This is Bill in front of Winterland. This is the morning of the last concert they ever had in Winterland in 1979. And the Dead always usually headlined that. And they did that show too, but Bill also had the uh, cast of Saturday Night Live and the Blues Brothers, Belushi and Aykroyd, they opened for the dead. It was an incredible scene backstage with everyone from the Blues Brothers, the TV people were there. It was, it was just a great, great night. This is at the sound check, and Bill's basically regaling John and, and uh, Aykroyd with stories. And they went back and forth, you know. Belushi would have a story, and Bill would go, well, listen to this, because a lot of people don't know this. Bill, before he ever came out here, before he started promoting shows, before he did the mime troupe, he was waiting tables in the Catskills, and he always wanted to be an actor. And so he was right back in his element with these guys. This is them on stage. Again, this isn't the actual show. This is the, the sound check. Jake and Elwood doing their moves. Donald Duck Dunn. They had a great band behind them, too. Now, this is from the snack show that I talked about earlier. This is Bob Dylan actually leaving the stage. You have Rick Danko behind him. And I love this picture because that's the press box from Old Kezar Stadium. And anybody that grew up in this city, there were great, great times at Kezar with the Niners in the, in the 50s and the early 60s. And every Thanksgiving, that was always the big turkey game for the high schools. And they say in the 30s and the 40s, they used to get 45, 50,000 people for that game. 72 Stones tour. And Bill didn't actually produce the whole tour for them. But from 72 to 78, the Rolling Stones were arguably the greatest rock and roll band in the world. And they put on an incredible show. And when they played these Winterland shows, they were actually doing two shows a day. They'd have an afternoon show. They'd have about a three or four hour break and they'd have an evening show. And they had Stevie Wonder opening up for them. And it was amazing. This is, I think, the next day. Mick Taylor was the uh, rhythm guitarist for the band then. And, you know, he was unbelievable. Keith was maybe at his height. 
And um, Robert Frank, I remember, was on this tour with us. And he was filming the documentary Cocksucker Blues, which never saw the light of day, although I'm sure many people here have seen it. When he actually showed the band his finished documentary, I heard that Keith said, you know, this is great, man. You've, you've captured it. This is like perfect. And Mick said, yeah, it's just quite good. He says, how much do we owe you? And did a thing where they paid him double. Basically, it was a buyout but let Robert be able to show it once a year at midnight, unannounced, at a festival. Well, four months later, I saw my first copy because there are no secrets in the music business. It's like telling your best friend in high school, maybe 10 minutes before the first class, hey man, if I tell you something, will you promise not to tell anybody? Oh, yeah. So by noon, the whole school's buzzing. It was kind of like that with Robert's movie. You can get it now just about anywhere and clean HD versions. I finally got a really good version of it in the East Village on the street about, about four years ago. This is from A Day on the Green. This was July 5th, 1977. It's Ronnie Van Zant and David, his lead guitarist from Leonard Skinner. They're both dead now. They were killed in a plane crash about four months later. Bill loved these guys. They had played The Day on the Green two days before but then flown to Austin, Texas to play in Willie Nelson's uh, Fourth of July picnic and flew back, not so much for the money, but because they loved Bill and how he treated them. And you can see infections between all of them there. This is my favorite band. This is The Clash. This particular, this is pretty much The Clash almost at the end of their run. And they were opening up, they were playing A Day on the Green in October 1982. They were opening up for The Who. It was amazing because The Who were at the top, and Pete put them on the bill because he loved The Clash. He was traveling at that point with his wife and daughter. I was shooting basically for The Who, but I loved The Clash, so I was going to shoot them too. And I had some of my gear in The Who's trailer, and I was going in to get more film, and I hear this loud voices, and then like a crash, and all of a sudden the door flies open and Pete's daughter and wife run out in tears, run past me, and I'm thinking, oh, do I really want to go in there and get my stuff? And then all of a sudden, Pete comes out, and he was just kind of leaning on the banister, and at that moment, the clash had arrived, and they've got their roadies, they've got these brothers from Brixton, dreadlocks, and they've got their big, their radios, and they're strutting in, and I think, Randy, I think you drove them there. They didn't want to be in limos, and so you and your friend had your cars. And they came in with swagger and bravado. And Pete's looking at them, and you could see in his eyes, like, this was me and my band 10 years ago. But now we're really big stars, and we've got this money, and I'm miserable, and I want to be these guys. <laughs> and, and the clash at that point, they were big but they really didn't have a lot of money. I remember they went to a friend of mine's house, their record label head brought them to my buddy's house to score some weed. And so they're all sitting around and they're like, wow, this is what's really, out. fuck the money. It's really all about this, isn't it? <laughs> this is one of the more infamous shows ever at Winterland. Lou Reed performed in uh, November of 75. He capped the performance by tying off and either feigning shooting up or shooting up. 
And I remember Billy Bowers and some of the cockettes were in front of the stage. Billy had on these elbow-length black leather gloves, beating the stage with a studded belt. Lou fixes up, and then he threw the works into, this, into the crowd, and they fought for it like you'd fight for a chin strap after a game. And Jerry Pompili, who was Bill's kind of alter ego at the time, he's next to me behind the amp. And when Bill or Jerry used to introduce bands they liked, they'd usually say, you know, once again, please, Mr. Chuck Berry, a permanent member of the Fillmore family. So I turned to Jerry and I said, permanent member of the Fillmore family, Jerry? And, and he goes, Michael, these people are sick. They're sick. Roger Daltrey, this was taken at the Cow Palace in November of 1973. It was the first show of their tour. Shortly after I took this picture, the band had to stop playing because Keith Moon, once again, he had flown up late from Los Angeles, missed the band's plane, missed the in-store, missed the sound check, and then one of their roadies picked him up with a girl he was with. They had taken some kind of drug. The girl was taken right to the hospital. Moon was taken to the show. We played, I'm not sure, three, four, five numbers, and then he fell out, and we adjourned backstage. I remember Bill was like in a heated conversation with Peter Rudge, their tour manager. You know, we've got 12,000 people. What's and he's, no, he's going to be fine, Billy. He's going to play. And I remember going back into the room to get more film, and Moon was curled up in a fetal position under this like card table with all the, the food, and Townsend was talking to him, trying to, you know, just, Keith, Keith. And I remember he grabbed one of the sandwiches, and he goes, Keith, he says, have a corned beef, corn beef sandwich. He says, straighten yourself out. So we ended up going back and played two, three more songs, and all of a sudden he fell back, and that was it. And Townsend went to the microphone, and he says, he says look, our drummer's a bit ill. He says, but we'd like to continue. To, is there a drummer in the house? And there actually that night, Mike Shreve was there from Santana, uh, Spencer Dryden from the airplane, and there were probably three or four other drummers. So this guy comes out, goes onto the stage, he finishes playing the show. It turns out it was a junior in high school, this kid from Carmel Valley, who had never played in a band in his life, but had a drum kit in his room, and he used to come back to his room after school and smoke a joint and put on his headphones and you know, listen to Zeppelin or The Who, and he'd be the drummer. So he played the rest of the show, and I heard when he went back to Carmel Valley High School and told his friends that Monday, they said, you're so full of shit. Yeah, yeah you played with The Who. Uh-huh. Right. This is Bill again backstage in October of 76. Roger Daltrey, Keith Moon, Pete Townsend. And Bill was always in his element. He loved the musicians. He loved show business. He loved the energy, he loved the action. And you know what, in the end, he made a lot of money, and I don't wanna say it wasn't just about the money, because Bill would always say, when they tell you it's not about the money, it's about the money. But he loved this as much as anything. And I think anybody that was really involved in this on any level, you know, whether it was me or the stage managers or anybody in the periphery, you did this because you loved it and it was exciting. And to me, this is what life was all about, and in many ways is all about. It's the excitement. This is backstage with The Who. Roger Daltrey and his friend, are the guy with the beard, that's Stanley Augustus Owsley, Bear, the Acid King. 
He did a lot of the sound for the dead, but he was really most noted for making the best and the finest LSD anybody ever made save Sandoz Labs in Switzerland. The police would always try to bust him, and he used to drive around Burke with one of those old white plastic Clorox bottles, ton of dirty clothes, and they'd like go through his car and go through the trunk and they couldn't find anything. Well, the acid was always in the Clorox bottle. It was liquid acid, and his stuff was so good, you could put a pin just dip it in the, the bottle and put it on the tip of your tongue. And in literally 30 seconds, you were flying high. So, but I digress. <laughs> what? Right after I took this, Bear tracks me down. He goes, hey, man, what are you doing, man? I can't have any pictures of myself. I said, Bear, relax. I'm with the band. Nobody's going to see these except the band and a few people. It's no CIA, no FBI. And no one did see them for a long time. Bear ended up moving to Australia, where I remember the first time he came back, he tried to get me to, he said, look, California, there's going to be this incredible earthquake. California is going to break off. It's all going to be gone. You've got to move now. Come to Australia. And I said, what am I going to do in Australia, Bear? Where am I going to live? He said, man, I've got property. You can have a teepee on the land. It'll be beautiful. But I never took him up on it. Same day, Pete was walking around, and he went into one of the Dead's trailers. And you see Townsend, you see Deborah Coons, who Jerry eventually married, Jerry, and then you see Robert Hunter, who wrote a lot of the Dead and the New Writers songs. And you can tell it was, it was very, very relaxed, and it was, it was a great environment. You know, those two shows, either band could have opened or closed. And it was 60,000 people, and, you know, it was like Pepperland. Ah, uh, Bill with Peter Grant. And Bill was, you know, trying to make the best of a bad thing at that point in time. And he's walking Peter onto the stage. But you could see, I mean, Peter was everything you'd ever heard about him. He was, he was great to Jimmy Page. If he was your manager, you were in great shape. If you were anybody else, look out. That's Jimmy. Uh, that last show, Jimmy at that particular time was really out of it. And I remember we had, staying at the St. Francis Hotel, one of the LAPD SWAT cops had to come and pick him up from his room physically, take him to the freight elevator. Elevator went down, carry him into the limo, carry him from the limo to the trailers backstage. And that day when he went on, the first couple numbers he was all over the place, and I remember Robert coming and just kind of sitting down on one of the monitors and, and like, holy shit. And then all of a sudden, he kicked in, and he was unbelievable. It was just like he was channeling something from another planet. And he was and is, I'd say, one of the great guitarists that ever lived. And I thought Led Zeppelin, if I had to pick one band from that era, they would probably be the band because more than just musicians, I thought, especially with Jimmy, they were alchemists. They took what they did to a whole other level. Okay, this is from the Arms Benefit. This was a group of English musicians. Well, not just English musicians. You've got Bill Wyman, you've got Kenny, you've got Chris Staten, Joe Cocker, Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page, Charlie Watts. They put on two shows here 
a show in Los Angeles and two shows in New York to raise money for Ronnie Lane, who had MS at the time and eventually died. They were incredible, incredible music performances. And our, Bill had me get this shot. This was at the, the sound check. And as always, Bill, even if he had five people running different things, Bill was the one that actually ran everything. If you were the chef in his kitchen, he'd come in, is this okay? What kind of sauce are you using? To the point where you'd be going, Bill, can I be the fucking chef and leave me alone? I'm taking the picture. He's going, Michael, do you have us all in the picture? Now, can you see every, and I'm, I'm like, Bill, I, I've got this, please. This is kind of the highlight of the show. You've got Jimmy, Eric, Jeff Beck. You've got Kenny, Charlie Watts. Just amazing, amazing performances. This was a little party slash press thing that we had in Bill's backyard in Mill Valley. And it was a beautiful late July afternoon. You've got Jerry, you've got Carlos, Zahn Artman. And I think they had like two, maybe three members of the press. And um, it was just a great afternoon. Even in the early days, Bill was, I mean, he had his detractors because, you know, there was the family dog with Chet Helms. And Chet was a beautiful person, but, you know, Chet wasn't into money. And he was considered a hippie and thought Bill was into money. So often at the shows at the Fillmore, at Fillmore West, at Winterland, you know, in between acts, there'd always be people yelling, Yo, Graham, you're a sellout. You're this. And, and Bill would be like, who, who said that? Come down here and say that to my face. Or, yeah, another heavy from Daly City. And Bill was always interacting with the crowd. I remember Stevie Wonder... When he opened for the Stones, he did, I think, a 45-minute set, and it was an incredible, incredible set. Toward the end of it, some guy right in the front yelled out, hey, get that blind nigger off stage. And Bill came out from the side of the stage and was going down the front of the stage, and it was like, who, who said that? And Bill was ready to pull the guy out of the crowd and just pound him. So he was not afraid to engage people. He used to do the same thing you know, before the show started. People used to be in lines around Winterland or around Fillmore or around Fillmore West, and Bill would always go up and down the lines, making sure everything was all right, talking to people, arguing with people. If somebody had something bad to say, he would stop and he would engage you. You rarely ever see that, not just then, but anytime. During that period at 67 through the early 70s, Bill did a series of benefits that saved the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinics that went on to treat millions of people free of charge. That first picture of the snack concert, and thanks to you, all those photos are on my wall, so we love you, Michael. That snack concert was when rock medicine started, and Bill came to Skip Gay and myself and said, you know, we can't have a concert in a venue because of the medical issues, and that's what started rock medicine, which now does a thousand concerts a year so I really appreciate that when you'd have an event with Bill he would come around you mentioned the chef he would come around to medical make sure we were all on duty we'd snap to attention every Bill Graham concert was run very precisely so there was a, a, a side of Bill that I think I'm glad you mentioned that because it tends to be minimized in these biographies ask any band manager if you're supposed to go on at 950 Bill was in your dressing room at 9.48, going, 9.50, where, I want everybody on the stage now. And if you put on a bad show, he'd be in your face. Peter Frampton had one bad show, as he told me. He says, I had one bad show, and you're going to talk about that? But he was all over Peter. 
Jim Morrison, the last time Jim ever played a show for Bill, he was having big problems with alcohol. Half the show, he stumbled around, he fell down a couple times, and after the show, Bill was in the dressing room almost immediately, screaming at him. So they paid that money and you gave them your body. All you did was give them your body. He was incredible like that. I'll tell you what, I remember Miles Davis, when Bitches Brew came out, opened up for the dead. And I was still teaching school at that point, and I'd gone to the Avenue in Berkeley and scored what I thought acid. And I remember the guys telling me, so now, you know, just take a half a hit or I can't be responsible. <laughs> so I'd had a bad week. It was Friday night. I took the whole thing. Halfway through the band that opened up for Miles, I started not feeling great to the point where festival seating, there was a huge, like, empty moat around me, like people had moved away, like, wow. And I, try, I remember I tried to give my money away, so finally I'm, I'm going to leave. And I wanted to leave, but as I went, got to the stairs, the Hells Angels were coming up the stairs. So I went to Bill, and I said, Bill, you've got to help me. Somebody dosed me. <laughs> and he said, Michael, you took LSD at Bill Graham's Fillmore West? I said, Bill. So he took me and locked me in his office, which was very small, and it was covered with posters. And like Keith Moon later, I ended up in a fetal position under the desk. But Bill, he was a man of compassion. So he sent Johnny Walker, who was his, Johnny was the old black man that used to greet you as you came up the stairs. And he'd greet you when you leave. He'd have a poster or an apple. And he'd always have something like, we're going to cure the sick. We're going to raise the dead. We're going to put some hair on a bald man's head. Have a lovely day. So he brings Johnny into talk me down. Johnny was drunk. I remember he was drinking old Mr. Boston gin, the cheapest gin. And he got down on his hands and knees. And he said, yeah, young man, have some of this. And I was going, no, no, man. And he started telling me about his days as a fur trapper in Alaska and how each fox went in the, the trail of the lead fox. And I, and I remember at the end of the night, Bill unlocked the door. Johnny was crashed out asleep next to me. And I got up, and as I'm walking out, and I'm still pretty, you know, like, Bill just looked at me like your father would look at you, just kind of like, <laughs> okay, I'm very disappointed. <laughs> I really appreciate everybody taking time out of what's usually a busy Friday to come and hear my tales of rock and roll excess. As you're walking through the gallery, just remember None of this would have been possible without Bill Graham, who was an empresario beyond Saul Hirak and brought so much, not just to this city, but to this country. And we're all in his debt, and we're all lucky that the Jewish Museum is doing this show so we can all appreciate what he's done for us once again. Thank you for coming. <laughs>